This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am joined today by Eric Potashnik, who is the author of Counter-Mobilization, Policy Feedback and Backlash in a Polarized Age from the University of Chicago Press. Eric, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, So I wonder if you might start us off by telling folks a little bit about who you are and what brought you to this project. Sure. So I am a political science professor at Brown University. I study American politics and public policy. And a lot of my work has been about what happens after policies are enacted and how battles over legislation doesn't end when bills are signed, but often continues into the post-enactment stage. So what I've done here in my book, Counter-Mobilization, is write a book about the dynamics of policy backlash in the United States since the 1960s. Now, I think many of us are familiar with, you know, the backlashes against the civil rights movement, perhaps issues like Roe v. Wade. But what I try to show in this book is that backlash dynamics, the mobilization of the public and organized groups uh, when there is a change or an attempted change in the status quo, is really an endemic feature of our political landscape. And in order to make sense of how polarized and contentious contemporary American government is, we have to do more than simply look at the beliefs that different groups have and about the tribalism that we're facing, uh, and those are very important factors, but we also have to put public policy back at the center because really what groups and citizens care about is how government affects their lives. And what I show in the book is that when uh, politicians are making changes or threatening to make changes that overreach public opinion or that threaten existing institutions or people's values, they often counter-mobilize. And that's really uh, a very, very important dynamic in the contemporary American political landscape. 
Terrific. So uh, I want to make sure that we pay some attention to at least some of the particular cases that you walk through in the book. But I wonder if we can start by doing just a little bit of the the, the broader uh, uh, brush clearing and 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 theoretical foundations. So uh, you point to what you argue are three key features that create bright conditions for backlash that have to do with motive, means, and opportunities. I wonder if you might walk through each of us for us and tell you what tell us what you think are the important factors that create space for a backlash. Yeah. And so and and just to be clear, I think it might be helpful to give just a couple of examples of the kinds of cases I'm talking about. So, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, the conservative backlashes against abortion and same-sex marriage and civil rights, the labor union, environmentalist backlash against the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA the populist backlash against the government's bailout of Wall Street through troubled assets relief program, the senior citizen backlash against the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act, uh, the backlash against managed care plans in the 90s, uh, the parental backlash against high stakes testing in public schools, the Tea Party and conservative backlash against the Affordable Care Act, the protest against COVID-19 restrictions issued by governors and state public health agencies. And of course, very recently, we've seen the public backlash against the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs uh, v. Jackson, which eliminated the national right to abortion. And I'd, I'd say that there are, you know, to understand why backlash is such an endemic feature of our politics is, first of all, there are some contextual factors that are that increase backlash. One of them is we're living in an era of hyperpolarization, whether uh, that polarization is driven by you know, genuine ideological differences over the role of government or just strategic incentives of the parties to win elections in an era of, of really you know, razor thin majorities, party leaders increasingly are engaging in, in uh, the mobilization of backlash in order to activate their base supporters and, and, um, and try, to, try to win elections. The other contextual factor I think that's really important is that American culture and society has changed dramatically uh, since, say, the, the early 60s. We've had large-scale immigration. The U.S. population has become more racially and ethnically diverse. Uh, black Americans, the LGBTQ community, and other marginalized groups have gained rights and acceptance. And millions of Americans have embraced these changes, and actually public opinion has moved left on, on many issues from same-sex marriage, women's equality, and others. But there are other Americans, non-college graduates, religious conservatives, and white residents of rural communities who hold traditionalist values and have felt threatened by the growing secularism and diversity of American society. And some of these citizens, you know, have found these changes very disorienting and, you know, feel like they're strangers in their own land. Um, and so there's a really large political divide between urban and small town America that, uh, that is helping to intensify backlash dynamics. And then the, the third and final broad contextual trend, I think that's important to understand backlash, is the negative policy feedback from the expansion of activist government itself. Since the 1960s, there's been a dramatic expansion in government uh, in, in a wide array of areas from healthcare to education to the environment. And that expansion of government has built supportive constituencies in many areas. There are a lot of interest groups that you know, rely on those programs and that lobby to see their programs funded and continued. Um, senior citizens like their Medicare, healthcare providers, and so on. Um, but at the same time, 
the broadening of the federal government's role has imposed costs on some other actors, such as business corporations. And, and so as a result of this vast expansion and, and uh, broadening of government, uh, we have seen the federal government you know, pulling more and more groups into the political arena. And some of those groups are counter-mobilizing against government activity, believing that they're imposing costs on, on their activities. So those are, those are some of the broad contextual factors that I think are making backlash so endemic. But then, as you said, the, the means, motives, and opportunities, what I try to show in the book is that backlashes are not random events. This is when it happens, when citizens and groups uh, mobilize against changes or, or threatened changes in, in the federal role, um, to some degree, it's predictable ahead of time. Not all changes, in other words, are have a very high probability of triggering backlash. And what I argue in the book is that there are three sets of factors that increase the probability of, of backlash. So one of them is whether the design of public policies themselves, the attributes of public policies, give particular constituencies incentives to counter-mobilize. And why would that happen? Well, there are, there are a couple of different kinds of attributes that can increase the probability of backlash. One of them is if policies impose concentrated costs on particular constituencies, such as costs on a particular geographic community or an identity group. Uh, and also, I would say the literature suggests if the costs are in the near term, people are, are much more likely or likelier to notice you know, a, a $50 increase in their, in their uh, grocery bill tomorrow than you know, a $300 increase in their long-term tax burden over, over 20 years. People are, are very, very sensitive to near-term costs. Um, there could be threats to the status of people who, who rely on or are strongly attached to existing arrangements. So, for example, part of the reason why there was a backlash against the Affordable Care Act was senior citizens perceived that the creation of the law was going to threaten the funding of the Medicare program on which they relied. Um, Many, many defenders of the ACA argued that wasn't really true, but there was a sense of fear and threat that uh, the expansion of healthcare under the ACA was going to was going to take money from the existing Medicare program. It was going to uh, thereby make the program less solvent and uh, de- degrade the quality of healthcare offered to existing beneficiaries. And sometimes it's the perception that matters rather than the reality. Yeah, you just raise a really really good point. And although I believe that policy design matters a lot, um, perception is key. And, and that can vary. You know, there are some kinds of policies where ordinary citizens can see with their own eyes. They have their understanding very well. If, you know, if gas prices are going up, perception and reality are, are kind of one and the same. But for a lot of complicated or novel issues, uh, citizens might not have a very good understanding. They might be relying on their, their intuitions or cues that they get from trusted groups. And you're right. It's how people perceive the effects of policies, not always the actual incidence of, of costs and benefits. Um, some of the other policy attributes that can stimulate backlash, including when there's a perception that policies are providing benefits to uh, groups that are perceived as undeserving, that are socially constructed by policy is undeserving, that can generate a sense of anger or, res- or resentment. 
um, that was another factor that, that I think that contributed to the backlash against the ACA, the feeling that some of the beneficiaries who might be receiving quite good health care uh, under the ACA might be unemployed, um, uh, might not be perceived as deserving. Um, and then there were some workers or some, some Americans, because of their income and the complexity of the law, didn't necessarily qualify for large subsidies on the exchanges, or maybe they lived in a state that didn't offer Medicaid. And so some of those constituencies were sort of saying, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I'm working really hard at my job. My health care isn't very good. Why is this law giving um, benefits to some other groups? And then, of course, you know, racial politics, racial stereotypes, all of those kinds of factors can definitely mediate the perceptions of which groups are perceived as as deserving. And then there can simply be overreaching, just, you know, parties or, or elected officials pushing policies that are, you know, way out of sync with the preferences of voters or that are, uh, you know, pushing government to work on a problem that's not very important, not a priority for ordinary uh, voters. Um, that can also lead to counter mobilization. I think that was one factor that contributed to the backlash uh, under the cap and trade bill that was proposed during the Obama administration to deal with climate change. That was coming after the Great Recession. It was perceived to increase the energy costs of ordinary Americans. At the time, a lot of Americans were struggling economically, uh, dealing with climate change, even though it's an, obviously an extremely important problem, was, was, was not really a top priority for a lot of, a lot of Americans. And it looked like um, uh, policymakers were pushing uh, the government to focus on a problem that wasn't a high priority for ordinary voters. And, and was, was, was a less obvious, urgent problem, arguably, right? Yes, that's right. At the time, I think coming out of the Great Recession, people were just worried about keeping their job, making ends meet. Even even some Americans that would recognize that climate is a you know a really important issue, that wasn't necessarily what they thought was the most urgent problem at the moment. So in all of those and some other ways, the design of policies can shape the probability of backlash. But then there are two other factors. Uh, the means and opportunities, I would say, also shape backlash dynamics. So if a group is going to counter-mobilize, that is not necessarily an automatic uh, event just because they're suffering a loss. To participate in politics requires resources. It requires political information, you know, the ability to write letters, the, the free time to join a protest. Um, and a lot of groups might not be able to overcome the barriers to collective action. In other words, just because a constituency is targeted by policy doesn't mean necessarily that they will be able to counter-mobilize. And in fact, because participation in politics is, is costly, unfortunately, that can mean that um, backlash dynamics can often reinforce inequalities in political resources. Some of the most marginalized groups that are arguably the ones that, that should be counter-mobilizing against government the most might not have the capacity to do so. Um, and then the, finally, the political opportunity structure creates external incentives for counter-mobilization. When there are, for example, in an era of polarization, uh, divided elites, that's going to make backlashes, if they're beginning to gather some strength at the grassroots level, that's going to amplify them and make them much stronger. Because if, if government passes a policy that some constituency is unhappy with, but pretty much all the political elites think the policy is a good idea, and they all are supportive, it's going to be hard for that 
loss-bearing constituency to find elite allies. But if the elites are polarized and they're divided among themselves, as, as we see often in, in many cases today, well, that constituency might find that one of the parties is willing to rally to their side, and that's going to really help their counter-mobilization build momentum. So you've, you've hinted at this, but, but is backlash necessarily a bad thing? It's a great question. Um, as I've defined backlash, um, which is simply a mobilization or widely noticed resistance against a change or attempted change in the status quo, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, the colloquial understanding of backlash as white backlash or simply a reactionary um, response to advancement of social rights is a, is a narrower definition that I'm using in the book. I'm defining uh, backlash more inclusively, even though I show empirically in the book that most backlash, as is true, I think, with our intuition, does come from the right, is not simply a, uh, a right-wing or a phenomenon. It can come from a variety of different directions, as we're seeing in, for example, the backlash against the withdrawal of reproductive rights since the overturning of Roe. And, and so what I argue is that backlash per se is not good or bad, even though backlashes do have very, very important implications, normative implications for democracy and for the allocation of rights. We have to, in other words, analyze each backlash episode separately from describing it. And um, some backlashes might be very important for promoting political accountability. Indeed, if backlash were not possible, uh, like we're seeing today in the in the backlash against Dobbs, then it would be much harder for voters and citizens to signal that they are not satisfied with the direction of policy change. But at the same time, backlash does not necessarily lead to the public good. Backlashes can happen um, when there's uh, when there's efforts to solve collective problems like climate change. Backlashes can happen when policymakers are providing benefits to marginalized groups or trying to uh, promote promote democracy. And so, um, you know, I think it's really important to map when backlashes occur, understand their conditions, and recognize that they have important normative implications, but those normative implications need to be analyzed separately, not folded into the definition of backlash itself. They can also serve important policymaking opportunities, right? They could be learning opportunities for legislators, yes? Yes, and I think that's true. I mean, in a, in a you know, if the American political system were working perfectly efficiently, well, then policymakers would always make decisions. There's no that, risk of that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's not, it's not. And so, what we see is that backlashes can be at times, not always, but at times, an opportunity for policymakers to gain knowledge about the acceptability of unfeasibility of different solutions to problems. So, for example, the backlash against the cap-and-trade bill during the Obama administration, I think, was, even though it was a, a negative experience, it slowed progress on climate change for, for over a decade, I think policymakers did learn from that episode. And so we saw, for example, in the design of the climate provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, 
passed under uh, the Biden administration, there was an effort to take a very different approach rather than uh, an approach that was going to impose perceived costs on ordinary Americans. Instead, we're providing essentially carrots rather than sticks, providing subsidies for, you know, solar paddles and for the green energy transition. And, you know, even though there are some, certainly some organized groups that uh, want to block the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, on the whole, we've not seen the kind of um, intense public backlash against those provisions that we saw under cap and trade, and it's more likely to be sustainable. And so, you know, there is an example, and there are many others, where some of these episodes where policymakers were trying to solve a problem, they took an approach that antagonized groups, um, but then over time, they realized, you know what, a different approach might be more effective. We could say the same about the substance and the process of the the efforts to create the Affordable Care Act, having learned from the Clinton era efforts at health care reform, yes? Yes, I would say so. I mean, I think the Affordable Care Act um, is certainly not a perfect act. It is. I study health policy. Uh, I have a I have a kid at the moment who's uh, taking advantage of the Affordable Care Act. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite um, appreciative of its benefits, but also aware of its limitations. But the design of the policy itself did reflect policy learning. The, the Clinton, uh, uh, the Bill Clinton healthcare plan was in some ways much more ambitious. It was a much more heavy handed plan. The Obama plan relies more heavily on the existing healthcare system. It's a patchwork reform. It leaves in place some of the flaws of the existing system, but it did expand health insurance through the exchanges and especially the Medicaid program in ways that left intact a lot of existing arrangements. And that was necessary both to to pass the, the law which was a major accomplishment. And as strong as the backlash was against the ACA for its first decade or so of operation, the core of the, of the benefit expansion, I think, you know, has now proven that it will endure uh, because people are relying on it. We're not seeing currently Republican candidates uh, talking about repealing the, the core benefit provisions of the law. And part of the reason for that story is that the law was designed to tread lightly on existing arrangements to people who already had health insurance and find ways of expanding coverage without um, threatening existing programs and, and private insurance to which people were strongly attached. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I wonder if we should hang there for a minute because we've got right the the passage of the Affordable Care Act and a counter mobilization, and then we wind up with a counter counter mobilization. Right? Can you talk a little bit about how that played out and what we should learn from it? Yeah, that was of course one of my favorite um, cases in the book, uh, and and I should say the book in, consists of both an overview of backlash dynamics, but then detailed case studies of healthcare and um, trade policy and immigration and social policy reforms, as well as some instances of, of conditions where backlashes could have happened, but, but didn't materialize. And I try to explain why. But yes, in the ACA case, what was fascinating was this remarkably intense decade-long war 
against the ACA, led by Republicans and conservative activists, much, much more intense than we saw, for example, after the passage of the Medicare bill in 1965. There was certainly a, an, you know, an effort to block its passage by, by physicians and the AMA. But once the Medicare bill was passed uh, in 1965, people adjusted to it very quickly. There was no effort to sort of you know, uh, destroy it or, or find it unconstitutional. Uh, that was a less polarized era than the context in which the ACA was passed. And so we saw a remarkable, you know, unique, intense effort to try to eliminate and scale back the ACA in every possible arena from state legislators to courts um, uh, throughout the country. And that backlash had, you know, did achieve some success from the standpoint of the advocates. The feature of the ACA that was most disliked, viewed as most coercive, was, of course, the individual mandate, uh, which we no longer have. There was um, uh, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which uh, provider groups and medical device companies and others were were concerned were going to cut into their profits. Well, IPAB no longer exists. Some of the taxes uh, in the bill, the medical device tax and others, those were scrapped. And so the backlash did have some actual substantive payoff from the standpoint of those that were engaging in it. And in fact, it also had political payoff. The Republicans did very well in the 2010 midterms, for example. And, and research shows that uh, Democrats from marginal districts who voted uh, for the ACA were really hammered. And so, you know, the ACA was a was a historic accomplishment for the Democratic Party, um, but there was a political price to be paid and 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 with a loss of a loss of seats in power. And so over time though, what I think became fascinating was when finally during the Trump administration, the Republicans finally, you know, had the opportunity to make good on their effort to repeal and replace the law. And they had proposed, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of laws to try to uh, do that over the previous decade. When they finally, it came time to try to do it, they couldn't do it because it was just so unpopular. The repeal and replace uh, laws, those efforts were some of the most unpopular bills in modern American history. It did come very close to passage with people like John McCain preventing it. But by the time that that came up, you know, many Americans were increasingly relying on the law, didn't want to see it scrapped. And, um, and so there was actually a backlash of the backlash. And finally, the effort to defend the ACA, which had not really paid political dividends to the Democrats, it had been a difficult issue for them for a long time, it finally became one that redounded their, to their advantage. So it's a remarkable example of how you could have a, a, a backlash that you know creates real risk to a law's uh, policy sustainability. And then finally, the effort to undo it itself creates a backlash in the opposite direction. And to pick up on something that you said earlier, this is this um, among the many lessons that you point out that policymakers might uh, consider as they're drafting policy. Uh, if you can front load benefits rather than have them come in over a long period of time, you are you are reducing the risk that there will be successful backlash. Yes. Yes. And so in the book, I talk about some specific tactical things that policy designers can do. And really what's important is both trending, finding ways on the positive side to build supportive constituencies by, for example, front-loading benefits, while also minimizing, you know, near-term visible costs um, uh, that are likely to be mobilized uh, opponents. And I, and I go through a, you know, a list of a variety of specific tactical choices that, that, um, 
that decision makers can use. More generally, I think, you know, when policymakers are confronted with the prospect of a backlash for, you know, let's say that the law, they truly believe in it, it's a good law, it's going to solve a problem. And, you know, their assessment of the political landscape is that backlash is, is, is quite likely. They have some choices. They can, you know, ignore the backlash and, and just continue ahead. You know, that may create some risk that, the, the backlash may be so strong that it threatens the law's in, initial um, uh, adoption and sustainability. They could lean into the backlash because they may believe that the groups that are opposing the law are fundamentally not only wrongheaded, but illegitimate. And so they want to try to actually generate conflict because they believe the conflict might have long-term benefits to coalitional politics, although that can be a risky endeavor. Or they can um, they could uh, lower their sights and they could compromise and they could say, you know, we're we're going to take a half a loaf. We're not going to we're not going to be as ambitious as we were. Maybe we'll you know, we will um, we, we just won't push for as ambitious a policy design. Or they could also try to use some of these tactics to try to still achieve their substantive goals while using the the details of policy design to manage back backlash risks. Um, and as I discuss in the book, there's really no one strategy that's right for all circumstances. And it's going to depend a lot on the on the details of the situation. And um, and what I try to do in the book is just make, you know, actors, whether they're um, policymakers or advocates or organizers, aware of these dynamics so that they can reflect on them and make a deliberate choice, whatever their particular goals are. And to go back to, to where we started why is this more common in this period of hyperpolarization? Well, I think you know parties are really well designed to um, uh, to fight. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, you know uh, David Mayo had argued at one point that a you know a party is basically a coalition that that mobilizes. And so if there's a party that is angry about the enactment of a law and it stays angry, it is going to have a you know, tremendous capacity to help actors overcome the cost of collective action, coordinate, coordinate that mobilization like happened in the ACA. Think about you know, all the disparate actors that came together to try to undo the ACA from ideological conservatives to grassroots, uh, grassroots citizens who were members of the Tea Party to um, business groups and, and pharmaceutical companies and device companies and, and others. And, you know, having a, a party that can try to provide shared information and frames and narratives that always really lowers the, the transaction costs of, of counter-mobilization. And it facilitates, you know, that kind of dynamic. And so as our two parties have become more polarized, I think that is really fed into, into backlash dynamics in areas where, you know, during the 1960s, our society was tremendously polarized on issues like race and Vietnam, but the but those fights did not exactly map onto the two-party system. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, American politics circa 2023 is so contentious. It's not only we're divided into tribes and have these deep divisions about, about race and gender um, and uh, the role of government, but those are not simply divides that are, you know, found across the entire citizenry. Increasingly, uh, partisan lines are mapping on to these other lines about um, fundamental beliefs about the role of government. 
So uh, we are we are recording this shortly after the November elections of 2023, and folks have are and have been talking about the presidential election of 2024 and looking at the outcome of these most recent elections. There are a lot of folks who are saying uh, there seems to be clearly a role that the uh, 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 Dobbs counter mobilization played in the Kentucky governor's race, in the Virginia House and Senate race, in the Ohio, obviously, ballot initiative race. And I've already read a number of people saying part of the trick now is we have to figure out how to sustain that. And we should be thinking about organizing the 2024 election around that issue. We should use the the uh, uh, reaction against Dobbs as a way to do some of what it is that you just said and overcome some of those obstacles to collective action. Any thoughts on that? Well, the Dobbs decision and its aftermath, I think, has been absolutely remarkable. First of all, it underscores, uh, I think, one of the key points that I want to make in the book, and that is, as important as white backlash is and um, reactionary backlash, and that's absolutely a fundamental dynamic in our politics, the backlash phenomenon is much broader than that. And we are seeing that. We've seen an increase in, in liberal backlash because inherited rights from reproductive rights to voting rights in many other areas are under greater threat as the Re- Republican Party has radicalized. The, the backlash against um, against the Dobbs decision played a huge role in the Democrats' um, over better than expected performance in the in the 2022 midterms. It's been a major factor every time there's been a ballot initiative against uh, against um, uh, on abortion rights. It's been from the standpoint of the Republican Party just you know an albatross. And uh, I think you know many principled conservatives uh, are pro-life and they believed that this is the right decision for for society. But from a political standpoint, it has been really, really, I think, uh, a disaster for the Republican Party. You know, for a long, for many years, the Republican Party did not actually have to face up to the to the consequences of their support for um, eliminating Roe because it was kind of an abstraction. But it's very different when the right is actually uh, is actually withdrawn. And what we've seen is that you know a belief that um, reproductive freedom is is important uh, is an important part of of an understanding of liberty in America is is widely shared by by many Americans, not only by liberals, but by by even by some uh, people who vote for Republicans. They just don't believe that it is something that the government should be interfering with. And so, from the standpoint of of um, the Republican Party, it is a very very big dilemma for them because the more salient debates are about abortion, the more difficult it has been. I think what we saw in, in the Virginia elections. You know, Governor Yunkin has been trying to find some kind of compromise ground and, you know, and and move out to the part of public opinion because, you know, parts of the public, I think, you know, are not comfortable with very late term abortions, for example. The problem is, is that the uh, Americans don't have a lot of confidence right now that any policy that would restrict, for example, only late term abortion would stop there because there's still, you know, a belief that a lot of a lot of conservatives would like to create a national abortion ban or constitutionalize fetal personhood. And so that is a, you know, a huge, a huge problem for the Republican Party. Um, 
going forward. And um, there's just no confidence among a lot of Americans that there really could be any kind of stopping point because there are there are lots of conservatives that have expressed quite publicly their belief in in there should be you know a, a national abortion ban, for example. And so until the Republican Party finds a way of managing those those tensions, it's going to be a major a major dilemma for them. You are listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Eric Potashnik, who's the author of Countermobilization, Policy Feedback and Backlash in a Polarized Age, new out from University of Chicago Press. Um, you ought to check it out, not only because it does a couple of things to my mind. One, really nicely synthesizes the feedback literature in one place in a way that I found just really sort of clear and helpful. Two, as you have heard, helps us think through the ways in which these mobilizations have played out across a range of issues over time and how to think about why they happen when they do and why they don't happen when they don't. And finally, as you've just heard, I think provides really immediately useful ways of thinking about this current moment and the kinds of policy battles that we are having at the moment. So I urge all sorts of folks to go out and check it out. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Really much appreciated. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.